Okay, we are going to spend two weeks, or plan to spend two weeks in Jeremiah, this week and, and next Sunday. And uh, as we do that, I want to give a quick overview of the book of Jeremiah and help show you how it fits into the rest of the story. We're, we're working through this story, teaching through the whole of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, and um, want to try and show you how the book of Jeremiah fits in that story. Now, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, not in terms of chapters, of course, the Psalms, 150 Psalms, there's 52 chapters in Jeremiah, uh, but in terms of actual number of words, I think Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, and that can make it quite a challenge to read. Uh, it also spans a 40-year ministry, there's 40 years over which Jeremiah is prophesying, which is contained in this book. And also the book isn't chronological, so it doesn't follow a chronological sequence. It's uh, sometimes more thematic in terms of how things fit into place. And that, and that means that if you read the book of Jeremiah slowly, uh, it can be quite actually daunting and quite confusing. And this is one of the books in the Bible that I find actually it's better to take a deep breath and to dive into and go for the whole thing. And I'd encourage you to try, maybe try and do that at some point over the next couple of weeks. Set aside or find a few hours just to read through Jeremiah. I've done that the last couple of days. I made some time and uh, probably took me about three hours, I think, to read through Jeremiah. And uh, I'd encourage you to do that because that does help you to see the, the flow of the story and see, see what is happening to grasp the big themes of what is going on. And uh, Jeremiah is ministering at this time at the end of the era of the kings, uh, shortly before Israel is about to be taken, or the, the, now the tribe of Judah is about to be taken into exile in Babylon. And actually, a huge part of our Bibles concerns this period in, in history. Uh, most of the prophets are prophesying in this era, and the prophetic books, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets, actually make up a huge section of our Bibles. And it's all around this era of the fall of Israel and Judah and going into captivity, being in exile, the promise of restoration, coming back and seeing God's promises enacted again, all of which anticipates and looks to Christ's coming and the outbreak of the kingdom of God. So this is really important stuff. And this is how the book of Jeremiah is introduced, Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, so we know that Jeremiah was not only a prophet, he was a priest, at Anathoth. This is a little village, just a little few miles uh, north east of Jerusalem, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah is one of the rare good kings who appears in the story. And throughout the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. And uh, if you read in the Kings, as we've been doing the books of Kings over the last few weeks, we've been spending lots of time there, you can read about these different kings who reigned over this 40-year period in which Jeremiah was prophesying and ministering. And in the story of the Old Testament, the Old Testament kind of trajectory, the point at which Jeremiah is ministering really seems to be kind of the lowest point in the story. Have the story of creation, which of course is a, a major high point, the world is made. You then have the crash of the fall as Adam and Eve rebel against God. The story then starts to pick up as God calls Abraham, and uh, God gives Abraham uh, a son, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then there's a fall as the people become slaves in Egypt, but then the story goes up again as Moses is 
brought by God to lead the people out of slavery into freedom. And then they come finally into the land after some ups and downs in the story. And that's an up and down story as they are now in the land in the era of the judges. And then a king is appointed. And that's a bit of a fall there because Saul is the first king and he kind of falls off a spiritual cliff. But then David comes, and this is a high point in the story. And after that, the story just seems to go down and down and down. And there are occasional high points. There are kings like uh, Josiah and Hezekiah, and the story lifts. But generally, the trajectory is down. And it's at this point when things are as low as they can possibly be, when all that's left of God's people is a little group of the tribe of Judah uh, in a tiny bit of territory of what they should have occupied. And they are on the brink of being taken captive and carried as exiles into Babylon. It's at that point in history when everything seems to have gone into reverse that Jeremiah ministers. Sometimes we kind of, it's a, an icebreaker question we can sometimes ask in maybe in life groups and stuff, getting to know each other. When in history would you have liked to have lived? If you could live at any point in history, you wouldn't want to live now, this point that Jeremiah is in. This is one of those moments in history you wouldn't want to be in Israel at that time in history because it's the lowest of the low. And it's Jeremiah's misfortune that he is called to speak into that context. And as we read Jeremiah, think about him and his life. He, when God calls him, he doesn't have a fantastic career ahead of him. There's not much joy in Jeremiah's commission. There's not much opportunity for job satisfaction. Jeremiah is as far from a consumer Christian as you could ever get. He's not in it for what he can get out of it. What we see is that Jeremiah is actually something of a reluctant prophet because of the difficulties of the times in which he's called to minister. But God knows him and God calls him. Next verse, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And we read that, and that sounds like amazing good news. And it's amazing good news because Jeremiah is known by God. That's good news. And he's called as a prophet to the nations, which is an amazing calling, but it's not one which is any of us would choose because actually what it brings to Jeremiah is difficulty and pain and difficulty upon pain and pain upon difficulty. And in the warnings that Jeremiah brings to the people at this time, he tends to reach back into the story of Israel. He reaches back to an illustration of what happened before the kings came to power, back into the era of the judges. And a, and a key moment in that story, a, a moment we looked at a couple of months back, is the fall of the priestly house of Eli at a place called Shiloh. This is another deep trough in the trajectory of the story of the people of God. This, this happens at the end of the era of the judges and the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the place where God himself is meant to be most powerfully present, and the priestly family are in a place called Shiloh, but Eli's family becomes utterly corrupt. We read that his sons become utterly corrupt, and as a consequence, the Ark is lost, the Philistines capture it in battle, and Eli's family is swept away. And you can read that story in 1 Samuel. And what happens now, several hundred years later, is that Jeremiah keeps reaching back to that story, to that story of what happened at Shiloh. And now at the era of the end of the kings, he relates what's happening to what happened at the era of the end of the judges. And we get to Jeremiah chapter 7, and it says that he stood at the gate of the Lord's house. He stands at the gate of the temple, and he calls out what is going to happen to this place. He says, 
this place has become corrupt, just like Shiloh had become corrupt under the priesthood of Eli. The Lord says to him, Go now to the place in Shiloh. Speaks through Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah's words to the people. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declared the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. Story of Eli at Shiloh was a tragic one. Eli, we're told, was blind, and then his sons were killed in battle by the Philistines. When we get to the end of the prophecy of Jeremiah, there is a king called Zedekiah, and his sons are killed by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians dig out Zedekiah's eyes before taking him captive to Babylon. There's a a mirroring of what happened to Eli at Shiloh and what happens to Zedekiah in Jerusalem. Shiloh's happening all over again. The the story is that God wants to build a house for his name. He wants to dwell with his people But God cannot dwell with corruption. God cannot dwell with sin. And what we see is that God isn't sentimental. And so there's this temple which has been built by Solomon, the most magnificent building in the land. It's the place now where God's presence is meant to dwell. It's meant to be the house for God's name. It's meant to be the place where people come to meet with God. And Jeremiah stands at the gate of the temple and says, it's all coming down. Because of your corruption, because of sin. Just as Shiloh was swept away, so this temple is going to be swept away. God's not sentimental about the building. And there's something in that for us. That we can, in our era, we can see that. People can get very sentimental about churches, about church buildings. Oh, this place has stood here and there's been a congregation here for this long. And actually, if it becomes corrupt, God isn't sentimental about that. God doesn't particularly care about our historical concerns or about the fact that there's been a church congregation here for X long. What God cares about is the purity of his people and them living in a way which honors him. And if a church comes, becomes corrupt, it will get swept away. That's what happens. And we see again here, Jeremiah is the very opposite of a consumer Christian. <laughs> Jeremiah isn't looking for comfort. He's not choosing a church which gives him the best children's ministry or where he finds the teaching the most interesting. What he's called to do is to proclaim the word of God faithfully, even though it's going to cost him again and again. What we see here is a model of persistent faithfulness. And so there's a message here for us in how to be faithful to our call in the hard times. And that's really where I want to focus for the next few minutes, thinking about how to stay faithful when life is at its lowest. Because Jeremiah lived in a time when life was at its lowest, and yet he stayed faithful year after year after decade after decade. Let's look at an example of this. It's going to be in Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah's complaint. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? For you have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. 
How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked and the animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. God's answer. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Jeremiah is ministering at a time when national life is at its lowest and Jeremiah's own life is one that is full of pain. Jeremiah's life is full of the pain of seeing what is happening to his people. It's full of the pain of facing constant opposition. He faces real dangers and experiences real suffering and his message is rejected again and again. And in this we see that Jeremiah prefigures Christ. And we need to hold on to that as we think about this story of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah, in a sense, enacts the story of Christ's life, that Christ faced opposition. Christ saw his people reject his word. Jesus saw the people uh, refusing to believe him. Jesus faced real danger and suffering. Jeremiah kind of acts these things out, models them, a prefiguring of the experience of Jesus Christ. And there are things here which we can apply to our own context. It, it might be that this morning you're, you're not feeling low today. It might be that you've come in feeling great, the sun's shining, all's good in the world. If that's the case with you, that's wonderful. Uh, for others, there are probably things here which will be immediately relevant, that for you, life does feel low at the moment, and so you can more easily associate with Jeremiah's complaint. But what Jeremiah articulates is always going to be relevant. It's always going to become relevant. It's always going to be relevant for all of us at some point. And it's always relevant to the question that all of us might ask or should ask or do ask, why is the world like it is? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper so often? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are questions and experiences which are always true for us. And we see here that Jeremiah is a model of how to bring a complaint to God. He's also an example of how the answers that God gives are not always the answers that we might want to hear. Now, how, how to bring a complaint before God is actually a pretty important theme that runs throughout the Bible. We, we see that people who complain wrongly get judged by the Lord harshly. And the primary example of that is the people of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness, when they've come out of slavery in Egypt and they're coming towards the promised land and they moan and grumble for 40 years in the wilderness. The way that God speaks to and judges their complaining is severe and serious and a warning to us. But there are other examples of people in the Bible who bring complaints to the Lord which somehow are good complaints. And this here in Jeremiah 12 is one of those moments. And I, and I think the fundamental distinction between bad complaining, which rouses God's wrath, and good complaining, which provokes a gracious response from the Lord, seems to be one about the faith and the trust of the person who is complaining. That you can complain in a way that actually reveals a lack of trust. And that seems to be an issue for the people in the wilderness. Basically, they didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They didn't have faith in God. And it was their lack of faith, actually, which leads to their condemnation. But you can complain while still trusting, while still believing, and that leads to mercy. What, where is your complaint coming from? Is it coming from a place of disbelief in God, or is it coming from a place of trust in God? 
We can, we can think of similar parallels in family life, in, in the family dynamic. If there's just complaining against one another, which comes from actually a lack of trust, lack of love for one another, that's always destructive. But there can be a complaint actually which leads to health. If it's coming from a place of trust and love and wanting the best for each other, that can lead to productive conversations and a fruitful response. Now, Jeremiah's complaint is rooted in his understanding of the Lord. It's how he begins his complaint. Lord, you are always righteous. Lord, you're always righteous. I believe that, Lord. I believe that about you. Despite all that is going on, Jeremiah hasn't lost sight of the righteousness of God. He, he hasn't lost belief. And throughout the 40 years of his ministry, he, he never loses belief. And that comes right to the conclusion. You get to the end of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's life looks like a disaster in terms of what's actually happening to him in the physical, in the now. But Jeremiah concludes with a vision of what's going to happen to Babylon. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to raise the temple to the ground. They're going to carry the people into exile. But Jeremiah sees that 70 years later, that will all be reversed, and God will bring his people back to the land. Jeremiah believes from the beginning to the end throughout his ministry. He doesn't lose that belief. And this gives us a model for our complaints that if we're going to bring a complaint to God, actually it needs to be grounded in belief in God. I mean, why complain against someone you don't even believe in? Why complain against God if you don't believe in him? And so if we're going to bring a complaint to God, let's do it from a place of trust and faith, as Jeremiah did. Now, despite his belief in God, Jeremiah does identify a problem. The problem is this. It looks like the wicked do better than the righteous. Lord, I know you're righteous, but it doesn't look like the righteous on the earth do very well. It looks like the wicked are the ones who get ahead. What's going on? And Jeremiah isn't the only person in the Bible who notices this. If you read through the Psalms, many of the Psalms have this kind of theme. Why is it, Lord, that it looks like the wicked are doing better than the righteous? Read the book of Job, you get the same theme. This is something which uh, appears again and again in the story of the Bible. And you might have noticed it yourself, that at times it seems like it's the wicked who are doing better than the righteous. Ever noticed that? And why is that, Lord, when you are righteous? Why is it there are these people around us, people who might put on a good show, as Jeremiah says, your name's on their lips, but you're far from their hearts. They're people who maybe look presentable and decent, but we know actually they're frauds and hypocrites, that fundamentally they're wicked. Why is it that they seem to do better than those who are genuinely good? And we all know the story of, we've all heard the stories of people getting a comeuppance, those who live wickedly actually in the end reaping their just desserts. That's a common reality. But Another common reality is that we can see that it seems that life often seems to go better for those who are not following God than, those, than for those who are. And that's true at every level. It might be true in your local experience. It might be just a kind of a, a local kind of envy thing. Why is it that the person two, three, four streets down the road where the houses are two, three, four times bigger than they are on my street, why is it that that person, who seems to have no concern for the Lord at, him at all, is doing so much better than I am? Why, Lord? And it works at national levels as well. Why is it that people in power, 
Why is it so often it's with corrupt people who have power? Why are so many nations of the world governed by people who actually seem to be monsters? Why does that happen, Lord? Why, why are the righteousness, righteous not lifted up to that place of authority? Lord, what is going on? This is Jeremiah's complaint. And Jeremiah is angered by this, and he uses some very strong language. Lord, slaughter them like sheep. That's very strong language, but actually it's not inappropriate. It's there. We can say this even in church. Let me let you into a secret. There are some people the world would be better without. It's just true. Uh, Grace and I were out the other day and we drove past a house which had a sign on the lawn saying, Death to Putin. And it was going, Whoa, that's a bit strong. Lord, slaughter them like sheep. There are some people the world would be better off without. Jeremiah recognizes that. It's, it's true. And Jeremiah sees that even the whole earth is under the affliction of these people. Look at the language he uses. He talks about the land being parched. He, he talks about the animals and the birds perishing. And again, if you read through the whole of Jeremiah, you'll spot this. This theme comes up a number of times about the barrenness of the land when the wicked rule. When the wicked rule, there are no animals. There's a barrenness that comes to the earth. And again, where there's an immediate residence for us, and that there should be. And so when we look at the earth, our earth now, that we see that where there is greed and short-termism, the earth is denuded. There are no animals. The birds flee. It becomes barren. That's what happens when the world is governed by short-termism and greed. When wickedness and godliness prospers, the whole of creation suffers. There aren't any animals in the fields. And Jeremiah's complaint then is a good one. It's grounded in belief, believes that God is righteous. And he identifies a real problem, and that demands a response. And so the Lord responds to him, but it's not the kind of answer we might hope for. Because what the Lord does, the Lord doesn't coddle Jeremiah, but he calls him to courage. And this is something I've been thinking quite a bit about the last few weeks. That I think this is a message we need to hear, that what we want is coddling. That's so much the kind of the theme of our culture. I feel down. I feel in need. I need to be cuddled, coddled, looked after. And the Lord doesn't always... Sometimes we can kind of feel that kind of divine hug. But a lot of the time, the Lord doesn't coddle us. He calls us to courage. And that's what he does with Jeremiah here. Actually, the answer he gives to Jeremiah is to say, well, Jeremiah, you think things are bad, they're going to get worse. He says, if you, if you can't keep up with men, how are you going to run with horses? Suck it up, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, things are going to be more demanding, not less. What are you going to do? You're feeling low, things are going to get lower. What, what God answers does is to completely reframe Jeremiah's complaint. What the Lord does, as the Lord often does, frustratingly, is answer a question with a question. You're not going to get what you want. You're not going to see the world as you'd want it. But, Jeremiah, here's a question for you. Will you stay true to your call? And then God really drives this harsh reality home. There's not much coddling going on here. Next verse. Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. <laughs> they have raised a loud cry against you. Don't trust them, though they speak well of you. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. Jeremiah, you think things are bad? You've been trying to keep up with men. Well, you're going to have to try and keep up with the horses because things are going to get even worse. 
Jeremiah has the misfortune to be ministering at the very lowest point of the nation's history. This isn't a story like the story of Jacob, who experiences difficulties, but then the Lord rescues him and the story finishes on and up. It's not like the story of Gideon, where Gideon's hiding from his enemies in a wine press trying to thresh wheat, and then the Lord raises him up. It's not that kind of story. This is a story where things can get worse rather than better, Jeremiah. For you, your story isn't going to be a Jacob story or a Gideon story or an Elijah story. This is a Jeremiah story. You get to minister in the lowest time, and things will be low and get lower. And Jeremiah's experience then is that experience of being as low as it can get. You read the story, he gets beaten up, he gets put in stocks, he gets thrown in prison, he gets chucked down a well. He mourns and he laments and he brings further complaints to God, but he doesn't give up. And in the center of the book, in, in, in chapter 32, we have this amazing moment that really shows the true measure of the man. By this stage, the Babylonians are besieging the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is confined in the courtyard of the guard. So the whole city is in effect a prison because they're being besieged by the Babylonians. And then Jeremiah is in a prison inside the prison. So this is as low as you can possibly get. And while that happens, in response to a word from the Lord, Jeremiah buys a field back home in Anathoth. Now what is going on? You're in a prison, in a prison, and you're buying a field. Come on. What this is, I think, is an amazing demonstration of obedience and an amazing declaration of hope. That Jeremiah is living when things are as low as they can be, but he believes a better day will come. And so Jeremiah personally invests in that future, even though he will never personally experience it. Jeremiah never got to enjoy walking around his field. But he believed that a better day was coming. And in this, Jeremiah is such an example for us. If, if, if the world is coming, if it feels like the world's coming to an end, what should we do? Buy a field. I think that's actually great advice. Once we're through the building project, let's buy a field. Let's fill it with animals. Let's have a field full of insects and birds and plants. Buy a field. Let's have a field where we can bury our dead and where we can have our church weekends and where we can celebrate community and have barbecues. Not of the dead, but you know what I mean. <laughs> a big field so there's space for a graveyard and for the barbecues far away from one another and all the animals in the middle. We can barbecue the animals. Anyway, getting slightly carried away. When it feels like life is at its lowest, what do you do? You buy a field. Invest in the future. Plant a tree, literally. Go, tomorrow, go to B&Q, buy a tree, stick it in the ground. Invest in the future. Plan for it, believe it, believe for a better day. Stay faithful even when life is at its lowest. 600 years later, there was another Jeremiah who spoke against another temple. The exiles had returned, the temple had been rebuilt, but once again, the nation had become corrupt. And in Matthew 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, Jeremiah, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. 
Just like Jeremiah, Jesus ministered at a low point in the history of the nation. Jeremiah ministered when the Babylonians were coming, besieging, going to take the people into captivity. Jesus ministered when imperial Rome dominated the nation, held it in captivity, and 70 years later would destroy the temple. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was abused. Like Jeremiah, Jesus suffered. But like Jeremiah, Jesus had a message of hope that springs out of death. Only this was going to be the death, not just of a city and a temple, this was going to be the death of Christ himself, out of which new life would spring. That Jesus is going to build a new house, built of living stones. And the Romans did come in AD 70, just as the Babylonians had come in 565 BC and destroyed a temple. But rather than a physical temple being rebuilt... Jesus is now building a spiritual house, a living temple, spiritual stones filled with the presence of God, a place for God to dwell. So what should we do with Jeremiah? Well, we need to hear the word of the Lord, and we need to heed the word of the Lord. We need to hear and heed the warnings of Jeremiah. We need to hear and heed the warnings about what happens if a people become corrupt. We need to heed the word of the Lord, and like Jeremiah, remain faithful. And when we do have those times when we feel as low as you can go and we want to bring our complaints to God, let's complain well. Let's complain from a place of faith, not from a place of unbelief. And let's be those who, like Jeremiah, do run with the horses. It's this call to courage. Actually, Jeremiah did run with the horses for 40 years. He remained faithful. He was able to keep up. He was able to keep going. He was sustained in through the most difficult times because of his faith in the living God. And in the highs, and we love the highs of life, and in the lows, we need to remain rooted in this hope we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christ's death was the end of an era, marked the destruction of the power of sin and death over us. And we now have been brought into this promise of life. And that's, this means that we can have hope. Jeremiah, in the bleakest, lowest of times, had enough hope to buy a field. We have a hope for a life, a world made new. Yeah. Now, that song we just sung, Amazing Grace, is actually some things which aren't quite theologically right. It talks about when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Actually, what we should sing is when we've been here for 10,000 years, because our hope is that the Lord is going to make this earth new. And we'll have 10,000 years here and 10,000 years more, and we will live in the fields which will abound with life and give praise to God, living stones being built into a spiritual house for the Lord. And so, even more than Jeremiah, we should have hope and remain faithful even when life feels at its lowest. Can we pray for that? Why don't you stand with me as the band come back and uh, let's pray. Lord, I pray first for those here this morning here for whom this does have residence. I pray for, for my brothers and sisters here this morning for whom life does feel very low, where the pressures and difficulties of life feel very obvious, when for some it might feel like Jeremiah felt when he was thrown down a well or when he was in prison in a prison as the Babylonians were besieging and as he faced all kinds of enemies in his own city. 
Lord, I pray for those who are in that place now. I pray that you would call them to courage and they would find fresh faith in you. That those who said, I can't keep up, will find that by your grace and power that they're even able to run with the horses. That whatever the demands of life are bringing at the moment, you would provide enough courage, enough faith, enough strength in you, Lord. That you, Thank you, you're the one who carries us. Thank you, in the end, you're the one who carried Jeremiah. That it wasn't his strength, it was you carrying him and speaking to him that sustained him through all those trials and difficulties in that long ministry. And so, Lord, I pray that for those who feel in that place today. Would you minister your strength, your grace, your power to them even now, Lord? And uh, Jesus, I pray for us all. Pray for us as a church that we would, yeah, we would turn from corruption, that, Lord, we would walk in purity, and that we would live in the hope we have in you, this hope which is rooted, grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ our Savior, which does speak of abundant and abounding life for us forever. Lord, I pray you'd help us to press into that and proclaim it and celebrate it, preach it and live it. For your glory we ask it, Jesus.